So we've been talking these last weeks about different elements of a list called the 37 Wings of Awakening. And I think last week with Nicola, you talked about the five faculties. No? Nobody remembers what they talked about? We talked about five faculties, but she focused on one of them. That's fine. Okay. So... You know, that's how you get to play with the list, you know. <laughs> you have a topic, but then you can play with it. So the next list, there's actually one called the five strengths, which is the same as the five faculties. I'm going to save it for the end, for my own, for my own playing with the list. And the next, the next list is something that's called the seven factors of enlightenment. That's one of those lists, you know, that word enlightenment is a little scary, actually. And there's that sense of, gosh, am I ever going to get enlightened? What does that mean? What does it mean to be awake? Am I fully enlightened? Do you get there all at once? Is there some sort of Shazam thing that happens that makes you very different and changes you? So... One of the ways that I find most helpful to work with the concept of enlightenment and awakening is to consider it to be something that happens actually for most of us very slowly. This is not to rule out the kind of sudden awakenings that do happen for some people. But for many people they don't. And it doesn't mean that you are a lesser meditator or practitioner. It probably means that you're just kind of ordinary like most of us. And it happens slowly. It's just a little bit of awakeness and a little bit more and a little bit more. And as I'm saying that, I'm remembering that teaching that I love from the Dalai Lama, where he said you should evaluate your spiritual practice in 10-year increments. And I was so happy when I heard that. Because, you know, most of us evaluate our practice in 10-week increments. And if we don't see a substantial improvement, we get discouraged. But for most people, this backfires on me once in a while, but for most people, if you look back 10 years, you go, oh yeah, you're a little nicer, a little more civilized, I practice a little more, I understand a little more, whatever. And you can see that you are a little bit more awake. So, and sometimes I think there's moments that are very awake. And then they go away. You you don't get to hold on to it. uh, One of the definitions of being fully awake is there's absolutely no greed. There's absolutely no hatred or aversion. And there's absolutely no delusion, although exactly how you know that is sort of an interesting question because sometimes we're deluded enough to think that we're awake. But there are moments that seem quite clear, no greed, no hatred, no delusion. You go, oh, oh, and then it goes away. One of the ways I work with the notion of awakeness is that when we are awake, we are able to find the place of freedom so freedom from greed and hatred and delusion in any given moment. You can find it. Not always obvious. So these factors have these different qualities. You have to be mindful. 
right? You're going to find the place of awakeness. You have to be there. Like Jack Stein that came back from Las Vegas. You must be present to win. You know, you must be present to be free. You must be present to be awake. So you need to be mindful. It takes some energy. It doesn't just happen. Despite, you know, all the New Age ads, pay X amount of dollars, go to the course, meet the guru, and then you're awake. And it seems very easy. But I haven't actually met very many people that got awake that way. It's not easy. It takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of investigation into our experience. And it takes a certain happy, joyful, relaxed frame of mind. So all of those are the arousing factors. So if you're going to find a place of freedom in this very moment as you sit here, it's going to take a little bit of energy. It might not take a lot of energy, but it will take some. You also can't be scattered. And most of us live extraordinarily scattered lives. I'm always surprised when I sit down sometimes, especially if I've been caught in family stuff or vacation stuff and I haven't sat for a couple of days, which does happen. And then I sit down and my mind is like faster than a speeding bullet all over the place. And it takes a while. You can't find awakeness with a mind like that. I am not awake when my mind is like that. So it takes concentration, really the ability to focus on one thing. It takes a certain amount of tranquility which comes from concentration practice. And it takes that place of equanimity, that place of balance where you're not so rattled, which is actually one of the fruits of mindfulness practice. So all of this, it's a little holographic. It all kind of fits in together and each one leads to another. So all these elements are what allow us in our everyday lives to find the place of freedom. I think it's wonderful to have moments of great freedom and I'm sure some of you have and I know I have when we're on retreat and things are still and quiet and balanced and you're being fed good food and you're hearing Dharma talks and you know your email and your voicemail aren't bugging you nor is your partner, your dog, your kids any of those things that get to us and so moments of clarity then that's not so hard but moments of awakeness and enlightenment in the context of the freeway, the supermarket your work, your relationship, your health that's a lot harder. It actually is, I think. And so we need to train to find that place of awakening. It's a great question. And you could stop sometime this afternoon. Just when it comes to your mind, wherever you are, and go, okay, what would it take to become completely free here, in this moment? Or maybe you're in the middle of a difficult situation. So how do you find freedom in the middle of a difficult situation? And that's where you bring in these different factors. And you may suss out, oh, I need to calm down a little. That may be more, much more what you need. Or you may need to, to work a little or to investigate a little. You know, those kinds of things to bring in that moment. So I thought I'd tell you a story. 
I actually don't particularly like to tell stories about things that I've done well, but this is kind of a fun story, and I thought it might be interesting, and then we'll have some conversation. So, as most of you know, I've recently spent a couple of weeks in Texas, and I can tell you, I can tell y'all, <laughs> that it is hot in Texas right now. It is really hot. And I had been out on an expedition with my son-in-law and my two grandsons, and um, we'd been in the car for a while, and everybody was, you know, tired, and the little boys wanted snow cones. So we stopped at a little local country store, not too far from where they live. Very country store. Get out of the car, walk up the porch, which is kind of creaky, and walk through the door. And there's a woman sitting there, um, extraordinarily thin, looking as though she were perhaps not so healthy, which I found out later to be true. And um, we all walk in looking fairly fat and comfortable and well off, and I forgot to close the door. I said, close the door! Oh my gosh. So I closed the door, took a breath, and I thought, oh, you know, maybe we're not welcome, and maybe it's hard for her to get up and make these snow cones, and... Um, and she did. She got up and went over to the machine, and she needed to get ice out. And so something in me woke up enough to realize as she was trying to get the ice out of the machine and into a bag, and that she could use some help holding the bag. So I just reached over, held the bag open for her while she was moving ice into the bag. She thanked me. And and then later on, made some really sweet comment. She gave me an extra large snow cone because <laughs> Grandma helped. <laughs> so, you know, it's a simple story, right? It's a very simple story. I could have not helped, you know? We were obviously came from very different places in life. We were there to buy a snow cone. I could have let it be a purely business thing, let her figure it out, you know? Or you can go, oh, wait a minute. You know, there's a lot of freedom in that place of opening the heart, letting go of any upset that I might have had about opening or closing the door, holding the bag, just being there for her. So that's the kind of thing I'm saying. It's not that, that freedom is anything fancy. It's not so fancy. It's very ordinary. It's always there. There is no moment that does not have the possibility of freedom. None. No matter what your dilemma is, no matter how awful it is, it can be very painful, very unpleasant, possibly even deadly, and there's still freedom if you hold it in the right way. And that's the training. And that's where it's helpful to have a list like this to begin to kind of go, okay, you know, I need to calm down a lot more. So maybe the next six months you do nothing but concentration practice in order to bring yourself calm. Or maybe you need to energize your practice. You need more effort and energy. And so that's where you work. So you can really work with all of these lists in that way. You sort of help yourself. You know, they are called wings of awakening, right? It's to give yourself another wing to help you wake up. 
So I think I'll stop there and see if there are questions or comments or wonderings or trying to figure out how to do it in this or that situation. Please, Joyce. Uh, I have uh, just a question about concentration practice. Oh, please. Well, that's it. You know, I, I've heard about it since I've been coming, and and I think I understand, but I still, well, do I do it? Do I, uh, <laughs> you know? I, well, if you I, don't do it, you won't get concentrated. Well, obviously, but, and I think I do, but it's still a confusing place. It's a great question about concentration, and um, there's, a, there's an easy suggestion which I'm going to make first. Or, it's a, but it's a longer term suggestion, which is if you get really interested, you might look on the Spirit Rock website for their concentration retreat. And then you get a whole week of concentration and that, you'll learn a lot. So, in, in the world of Vipassana, there are two main elements to this mindfulness practice, this insight practice. One is concentration and one is mindfulness. Mindfulness is not necessarily concentrated. Mindfulness is sometimes very wide angle, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, mental objects, the whole thing all at once. It's crazy. And that's about as good as you can get. You can't get concentrated, but you can at least have this broad angle awareness. Or maybe you're watching the sound and a body sensation and the sound and then a body sensation. So the Focus comes in more, but it's not fully one-pointedness. Concentration is one-pointed. You need a certain amount of concentration in order to be mindful, because if the mind is really scattered, you can't even be mindful. So sometimes we train in concentration to support our insight and our wisdom arising. So when you're training in concentration, you put the mind on one thing and you keep it there. Nothing else counts. No, if you're following the breath and you hear a sound, you just keep the attention on the breath. If you're, you know, your nose begins to itch, you just keep your attention on the breath. Your mindfulness might help you to know that it's an itch, but you just but what's in the foreground is that concentration on one thing. If you fall off, sort of like on a balance beam, then you get back on again. You come right back to the breath, and you just stay there. What concentration does is it creates tranquility and calm. And it, it, it's very strong. It can create very deep, absorptive states of mind. They can, they can be wonderful, actually. And they can be actually a little addictive. That's the downside. So then we all want to be concentrated all the time, and we all want to do all the rest of the practice. And there's lots of great stories about monks who were really good at being concentrated and then they were really grumpy for the rest of the time in the monastery. And you know, There's one great story about Ajahn Chah. I took a monk like that and made him his personal attendant, so all he had to do was wait on Ajahn Chah. He couldn't, had no time to get concentrated. He was a smart monk. He realized what was going on. He let go of his attachment. So if you're interested to develop it, then you could do mindfulness of breathing and just do that. Yeah? Yeah. That's a long answer, but imagine you're not the only one with the question. Well, I thought that's what yeah. more or less was, but thank you. Yeah. So mindfulness of breathing is not all of a person, not all of insight practice, because sometimes you can't, sometimes you can't 
stay there. There's, you're, you're too sad or you're too upset. And then you have to open the awareness to include these other things. Yeah. You had a question? Um, yeah. It, for me, it's pretty easy to do something like you, your mm-hmm. example. You know, I can see somebody and, and not be judgmental, blah, 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 and helpful. But the people that I love, <laughs> oh, those people that we love—they <laughs> are a problem. It's hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I did a lot of training for a while with a man whose name is Hamid Ali, who run, does something called the Diamond Approach or the Rig One School, based up in Berkeley. Some of you may know his work, and he talks about. Um, how in order to wake up completely, we have to move back through all the developmental stages and resolve any issues that we might have. And people that we're close to tend to touch some of the earlier issues. We've been around them longer. Some of the people we've been close to, you know, I think of my siblings, right? My brother just turned 66. We have 66 years of history between us. That's a lot of history, and not all of it's good. So, in order to wake up with him, sometimes I have to go back and start working on some of that early stuff. So I think the people that we love, in fact, do trigger more. It is harder. Yeah. I don't know if there's more to say to that than that. It's just, yeah, it's true. Don't, I suspect everyone in this room. And that's why family, you know, if you think you're cooked, if you think you're enlightened or awakened, go to your family reunion. (laughs) With your mom, your sibs, your dad, your brother, whatever, your kids, you will find out that you are not. For sure. I, it's, I don't guarantee much, but I will guarantee that. Okay, I think maybe we need to stop. If there's burning questions, come up and, and ask me after.